If you would, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1 in your Bible. Revelation chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Is there anybody that did not get a handout from last week? The handout from last week should be titled handout number two, lesson number two. Oh, what a savior. I got two left, so. Not sure. Anybody else needs one? We got one extra, so. All right, Revelation chapter 1. And uh, just to kind of conserve some time this morning, we're not going to read the, the passage again. We read, we've done that a couple times. Um, but let me ask for some verses, the ones we didn't get to last week. And, and I think I told you Daniel chapter 10, but actually Daniel chapter 7 is uh, the verses I'm looking for. I'm not sure what uh, was on my mind. We're, we, and it'll be a few minutes before we get to them. Uh, to any of these verses, but Daniel chapter 7, and then when the time comes, if you could read, Pastor, verse 9, 7, 9, and then 7, 13, and 14. So I'll, I'll say the verses again when we get to them. But then if somebody else need another volunteer to look up Acts chapter 7, all right, Andy Follett, Acts 7, and then if, when that time comes, if you would read verses 54 through 56, and then I need somebody to read from Acts chapter 9, all right, with John, and actually verses 1 through 9 on that, all right? And again, that's when we get to those. Um. Anybody else just dying to read some verses? I can give you some more. Uh, some I was just going to kind of refer to, but I can give you some more. Um, all right. Brother Andy Utsi. Uh, let me find my numbers here. Second Corinthians chapter 12, most likely verses 1 through 6. I'll confirm the verse numbers when we get there, but I, I think... That we might have to, we'll see what the time's like at that point, might cut them down a little bit. But verses 1 through 6, 2 Corinthians 12. And again, all, every one of those is going to be a few minutes down the road, but uh, Lord willing, we'll get to those. All right, so let's do this this morning. Let's go ahead, we'll just start with a word of prayer and then jump right back in here. Um, and Lord willing, want to try to finish covering this, this main part of chapter 1 here. Uh, this morning. So, Father, as we look at your word this morning, we want to thank you, number one, for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And I pray that as we uh, consider, even in really a rather brief way this morning, this important passage of Scripture in, in Revelation chapter 1, I pray that you would help us to have a, a deeper appreciation for and better love and respect for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in His name we pray, amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 1, as you are aware, we started looking at the book of Revelation recently here, and um, 
we're probably admittedly going to be spending a little bit more time here in chapter 1 and then maybe in chapters 2 and 3 than we will in some of the other chapters later on, and there's reasons for that. Um, but Revelation, in case you haven't, I mean, I've said it, but in case you haven't seen it for yourself yet, I think you will hopefully this morning, but Revelation is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it is saturated with just telling us who He is, what He's like, what He's, some of what He's done, and much of what He's going to be doing uh, as well. And so, uh, just all about the Lord Jesus Christ, the title of the book. Remember, as it begins in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the revealing, the, the disclosing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like, you ever seen those um, uh, situations, you know, where they have some kind of monument or some kind of special thing that they're going to, uh, you know, unveil and they whoosh, pull the pull the cover off and everybody gets to see. That's kind of like the idea here. It's like this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And in, in many ways, um, he's shown to be a lot different than he was presented in the Gospels. All right? Uh, and uh, there's a lot of emphasis on his, obviously, on his majesty, his uh, authority, uh, and just his, his prerogatives, if you want to say, that he has as being God the Son. When he came to this earth, when he took on humanity, became a man, and came to this earth, you know, as Philippians chapter 2 says, he laid the certain things aside. He emptied himself of rights that were his as God the Son. He willingly laid those things aside in order to, a, to accomplish something that only he could do. And he did that, uh, you know, the motivation behind that is described in the Bible as love, God's love, right? Both God the Father and God the Son. And we're, we'll see a little indication of that again here this morning. But he laid those things aside. And the point being is, in the book of Revelation, you were really shown, okay? In Hebrews, we saw... Uh, a unique view of Jesus as he did a ministry, you know, between God and man in heaven, all right? And now in Revelation, we see Jesus as having ascended back to heaven because as we see him in chapter 1, he's always, and really throughout until, until chapter 9, he's always seen as being at the right hand of the throne of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, and, and he's seen now as having ascended back to heaven and taken, put back on, so to speak, all his royal robes, all his, the prerogatives that he set aside, the rights that were his that he laid aside to willingly do what he had to do in becoming the Savior, we're shown now that he's back in heaven and he's, he's got all that back. Not that they weren't his, but again, he laid them aside. It's like he's put back on his majestic robes. And uh, he looks, every time we're shown what Jesus looks like in the pages of Revelation, he looks far different than what he ever would have appeared here on this earth. Isaiah 
uh, prophesied that he would, he would be basically be, you know, he, w- he would look like a common man. It wasn't, wasn't going to be anything when people saw Jesus walking here on the earth. There wasn't anything in his physical appearance to make people think, wow, that must be God. Because he looked just like an ordinary man. Now, he didn't act like an ordinary man, but in his physical appearance, he looked like an ordinary man. And, uh, but in Revelation, that's not the case. In fact, every instance in some of the uh, references we gave out are some of these instances, but in every instance that we see Jesus after his ascension at the end of the Gospels and also in Acts chapter 1 given for us, every instance we see of Jesus, he looks vastly different than he did when he was here on earth. And that's because, again, he's now back and he, he, is, he is put back on what he had before he became a man and came to this earth. All right, so keep that in mind as we see what we see here in the book of Revelation. All right, we, we, uh, we saw the introduction previously in verses 1 through 3. Now we see in verse 4 through uh, kind of, uh, I'm going to say verse 9 or so, we see really the, the technically the salutation where John identifies himself. He, he uh, identifies who he's writing to. Like normal epistles, you know, in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Church of God at Corinth or something of that effect. And then usually there's a statement. In fact, in uh, every one of Paul's epistles that I know of uh, that are at least uh, identified as him as the writer, he's, he's, he wishes grace and peace upon his, his, those he's writing to. And in the pastoral epistles, by the way, he also adds the word mercy to those. Uh, <laughs> grace, peace, and mercy. Uh, but anyway, uh, here we see John, all right, and he basically kind of the same format, but it's a, it's a little bit longer, if you want to say, and he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace, peace be unto you, and then he adds this, from him, from him which is, which was, and is to come, from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, all right, and then the rest of the description that we see is all describing Jesus Christ, all right? And we we looked at those verses last week. I'm not going to revisit those so much right now, but notice this, though, at the end, all right, uh, of verse 6, where he's he's just been describing the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's given a description. He's mentioned his deeds here, all right? He loved his people. He washed his people. He anointed his people. Now, notice the end of verse 6. It says, to him be, and the him here is, the one he's just described, the Lord Jesus Christ, all right, uh, who's done all these things, and it finishes with making us kings and priests unto God and His Father, to Him, to Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory, all right, He's the one that deserves all the glory, and He's the one that has and deserves all dominion. The word dominion would be the idea of a, a ruling capacity, all right? Now think about this for a second. This could only, rightly in the Bible, all right, unless it's identified as being spoken by someone who's, who's lying, okay, this could only rightly be said by someone who is giving worship to God, all right? And so, again, that reiterates the fact the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He didn't become God. He... he always is God, always has been God. 
God who took on humanity, all right? And then notice the, the Savior's declaration. This is what we're going to focus on here this morning, verse 7 and following. Some of this I'm going to be, uh, go through quickly here, all right? But you see, verse 7, behold, he cometh with clouds. This is an interesting statement. Notice how that is worded. Behold, he cometh, all right? For many of you, you're familiar that in your, your, your King James Bible, all right, when you see like an E-T-H ending on the word, and by the way, this is one of the good uniquenesses of the KJV versus other more modern, so to speak, English versions, all right? But when you see the E-T-H there, if, that, that is at least generally speaking, is indicating that that is in a continuous, you know, like a present tense. It's a, it's a continuous kind of action. The idea of this is, the way it's worded is, he is coming. It's not just he's going to come again one day. He is coming. It's written as if he's in the purpose of coming. Now, granted, there is what's called a futuristic present, and the idea of that is it's talking about a future event, but with the certainty that it's, it's so certain that it, it's described as happening now. But either way, my point being is the whole, the whole attitude, the whole mindset tenor of, of this is the idea that he is coming. And that's what Revelation's all about. Jesus Christ, who he is, and the fact that he is coming. He's in the process, you could say, of coming again right now. Now, he hasn't come back yet, but he's, I mean, it, it, he's, it's happening. He is coming. Tim, would you give that to Brother Nick there? Um, he is coming again, all right? So, um, this is important. Again, just the surety that, that is behind all of this in this wording here, right? He's coming with clouds. It's interesting that when he's described as having ascended in Acts chapter 1, it says that clouds received him out of their sight. And here it's, it's saying that when he comes, you know, he's coming with clouds. In other words, he's going to appear out of the clouds one day. And this is speaking of the second coming proper, right? When he literally comes back to this earth, and in the book of Zechariah, maybe we'll look at that later on, uh, talks about that when he touches down, all right, he's going to come back, his feet are going to descend to the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. I mean, you, you, just talk, you, you think about the, the pictures and, and what's involved in this. And that indicates, of course, the power, the might that he has. We're talking about God the Son. All right, and and says they also which pierced him. It's well, excuse me. Every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. <laughs> it's interesting that it adds that. You know, the ones that put him to death, they are going to see him as well. Think about that. You know, um, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. People. I mean, I, I don't know that we can rightly fully grasp the immensity of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to this earth. And the, just the, the uh, I mean, for those that are His already, the glory, yes. For those that aren't His, the sheer terror that they will experience. I mean, I don't, I don't think that we can, you know, I don't think... Steven Spielberg or whoever, you know, could make a movie 
that with the special effects that could fully describe what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to this earth. What a, I mean, what a tremendous thing. Uh, and then notice, he said, I am Alpha. Now, now this is interesting here, verse 8. All right? He's coming, all right, and all these people are going to see him. They're going to wail because of him. And John adds, even so, amen. We see that toward the end of Revelation as well. John adds that, all right? It's like this punctuation, but notice also the, the, what, the real punctuation here, verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Now the question then begs to be asked, who is speaking there in verse 8? All right? Uh, and you could, you could answer it saying it's God the Father, you could answer it saying it's God the Son, and be true, you know, both are true, Okay? Personally, I believe because of what's happening here, this is God the Father speaking and basically putting His stamp of approval and authentication, if you want to say, on what's happening here. God the Father, all right? This is real, people, is the idea. I mean, it's just He's he's putting a punctuation here on this declaration, all right? Then you see the preparation for this declaration. If you uh, haven't found it yet, we're on the, on the handout that I gave you on, on page 5, and I guess I should start the slides, get going here. <clears throat> Let me get ahead here. Sorry about this. Preparation for his declaration. So in order for John to be given this revelation of Jesus, certain preparations had to be made on his behalf, on his part. Think about this, all right? Uh, John receives all this at a specific point in his life. Now, this is John the Apostle, all right? We we talked about that way back, um, who's the human writer here. Arguably, arguably, the closest human being to Jesus while he was here on his, in his earthly ministry. Arguably. I'm, I'm not making the statement saying he is, but arguably so. All right? He's the one that's described. I mean, we have the apostles, you know, with the, the multitudes, and there were others, and, and then the apostles, and then you had the three apostles that were several times singled out to accompany Jesus on very special occasions. Peter, James, and John. But then there's only one that's referred, <coughs> excuse me, referred to consistently as the one that Jesus loved. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't love the others. But I think it indicates there was a special kind of relationship between Jesus and John. John loved the Lord Jesus Christ. John was faithful to him. And by this time, the the mid-90s in that first century, John's an old man. The last living apostle, all right, He's endured, I mean, other historical sources talk about various things that John endured as he was persecuted for his faith. And basically, he was, you know, they, they attempted to kill him several times. Uh, 
and he survived those attempts. So basically, he's banished by the Roman Emperor Domitian on the Isle of Patmos, a, a small island in the Aegean Sea just off the coast of Asia Minor. There were salt mines and things on this island. Um, but the indication of everything here is that John's basically alone wherever he is on the island here. He's basically alone. All right, he's been banished. And God has used these things in John's life, and there's a lot of practical lessons here, by the way, that you could, you know, how God works in people's lives, prepares them for things and situations and so on. But God, God used various things to prepare John for this. I believe that God had in mind, all right? He had to, he had to go through these things, get to this point to where he was ready for this, all right? And you see... John now, I mean, he had, li- he had to have lived a faithful life enduring much for Christ. I mean, now he's banished. He had, they attempted to kill him, and he's, he's, he's banished, right? He's, he had to be isolated. He had to be intoxicated. Now, again, I'm just alliterating here, but I'm not talking about he, was, he had imbibed of alcohol. But, right, if you think about Ephesians 5.18, it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but what? be filled with the Spirit. There is a correlation there between uh, intoxication of spirits and intoxication, if you want to say, or influence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. All right, Obviously, there's a correlation there. And my point being is, John was, had, been, had to be prepared. He was in a special place, special time, all this, so that the Holy Spirit worked in John's life in such a way that we have the book of Revelation as a result. John was shown things, and he was told to write these things, all right? And, and he even described sounds, not just sights. So John wrote what he, was, what he heard and saw, all right? And, and that's what we have in the book of Revelation. In fact, let me, let me read this. I think this is a decent description of this, so I, I thought rather than just for sake of time, I would just read it this way. But in, in verse 10, we're, we're uh, excuse me, verse 9, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The idea, most likely, that he was there because of all right, the Word of God, because he had stood for the Word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, because he had, he had borne testimony of Jesus Christ. All right, that's the most likely way that that's meant. However, it is possible that it also means he was put on the Isle of Patmos, not from the human standpoint, but from God's standpoint, he was put there to receive the Word of God, to receive this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's possible, okay? Um, but, um, which, again, would be the book of Revelation. But then he says, um, in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. All right, so he said, it was the Lord's day, and I believe this should just be taken simply as other references in the New Testament. This was a Sunday. This was the first day of the week. All right, John is banished. He's not able to assemble uh, with, with a church, all right, because he's all alone. He can't just come and go freely and do what he wants to do. 
He's a prisoner banished on an island. And so it's the Lord's day, and John has this. I, 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 would, I would think that we're not stretching, if you want to say, to think that John was spending special time in prayer and, and thinking about the Lord and thinking about Scripture and various things, and God worked in his life in such a way that he showed him all these things. All right? Um, and let me just read these comments here, all right? In the Spirit may refer to the Holy Spirit and suggest that John was particularly under the influence of the Holy Spirit. If so, it means that as a result, he was taken beyond where his normal senses and experiences would have taken him. He was about to receive a revelation directly from the Lord. In the Spirit may instead refer to John's own spirit and mean that John was in a trance in which he received a vision. Um, and there's some other uh, references in the Scripture given here of that, but whoever, I don't, I think, Brother Andy, you got first, Second Corinthians, I mean, Second Corinthians 12. Can you read verses 1 through 5? God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he has caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. All right, that scripture is, is the Apostle Paul's writing there. And he's writing about a, some kind of circumstance, all right? There's debate on the, exactly what that was. Some, some believe, and I, I don't have a problem with it, that, uh, that that experience happened when Paul, if you remember when he was in the first, first missionary tour, him and Barnabas, and Paul was stoned at Lystra, all right, and left for dead. Some debate whether he actually died or whether he, you know, came close to death because he was left as if he was dead. But then later we see him, he gets back up, and you know, uh, and some think, okay, this particular scenario that, that Andy just read about where Paul's relating this experience happened at that point. You know, he was either dead and, you know, kind of like he starts to go to heaven and God said, okay, we're not done with you, put you back, that kind of thing, or what, you know. Anyway, but the bottom line is, Paul writes about some kind of, spiritual experience where he saw certain things that normally no human being is going to see. Okay, that, that's the idea. John, perhaps, and, and the reason to bring that up here is perhaps that's kind of a parallel of what's happening with John here. All right, again, uh, this could be taken a couple different ways as to all this, but the bottom line is John was spiritually prepared and God was working in his life in a special way so that John really saw and really heard these things. Now, this wasn't a physical experience. Everybody, you know, it wasn't like this, this played out physically before him on the Isle of Patmos. All right? This was a spiritual kind of experience that John had here to be shown these things from the Lord. In fact, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that John is called up to heaven. 
There, you know, in verse uh, 1, I believe it is, of chapter 4, John says he heard a voice saying, come up hither. And John's caught up to heaven. All right? Uh, it, this was some kind of special, obviously spiritual experience that John has here. And the product of that is he's given the content of what is the book of Revelation for the purpose of recording it for us. Okay? That's the thing. But he was specially prepared, all right, for all of this. And I got to hurry. All right, notice uh, also now the presentation of this declaration concerning Jesus Christ. John is privileged to have a special viewing, if you want to say, of the now glorified Lord Jesus Christ. He shares it with us in these verses here. And Jesus is declared to be the all-majestic, universal judge who ought to be feared. What a vision John sees in these verses, all right? And I'll save some comments here. Let's go ahead and, and kind of look at some of these verses, all right? He, he mentions about he's on, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He hears, all right? It says, here's behind him. I think very likely, again, to me in my mind, I, I, I'm not saying this is has to be this way, but in my mind, I picture, all right, John's probably like on his knees praying, and he hears behind him, all right? He hears this voice that he describes as, as a trumpet. Now, it doesn't mean it sounded like a trumpet, like, you know, the instrument, but the idea is the, the great as a trumpet. Literally, it's the idea he heard this voice a great voice as a trumpet. So great and trumpet go together. The point is, is that it's, it was loud, it was clear, attention-getting, that kind of a thing, all right? This was this great trumpet-sounding uh, kind of uh, voice here is what he's saying. Now, here's what the voice says, verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now, think about this. We've seen these statements somewhat already, and there are, I mean, you know, the, the, the pool of possibilities of who can be saying this is very small, <laughs> if I can word it that way, all right? I mean, obviously, the descriptions that are given, whoever is saying this has to be God, all right? He says, saying, I am Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. Those are statements of eternality. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So he turns, I always get a kick out of this, and I'm not, but turn to see the voice, all right? Uh, you hear voices, you see other things, right? But I mean, but just the way it's worded, I mean, I believe, again, that John fully knew who was speaking to him and that he's with anticipation, all right? This is some 60 years, roughly after John has last physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe he, he turned with anticipation to see the one who loved him, all right? Now, he gets, he gets a surprise in what he sees, okay? But he does see that one. He just looks different than John had ever seen him before, uh, except for a glimpse in Matthew 17. But uh, 
He turns to see the voice, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, I think it's very important to note that statement right there. When John turns to see, the very first thing that he sees is seven golden candlesticks. Now, I'm not going to, we'll, we'll get into those later, all right? Now, notice verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a fire." and his voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth or shining in his strength. All right, now let's just pause for a second. And again, notice some of the descriptions that are in here. Before we look in detail as to what's here, if, uh, Pastor, if you read those verses out of Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 9, in fact, after you read verse 9, if you'll pause for just a second. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels were a burning power. All right, so this is Daniel many years before this, all right? And we, we mentioned some about Daniel before and how Revelation seems to complete Daniel and so on. All right, there's a lot of connection between Daniel and Revelation. Um, but this is Daniel seeing some visions, all right? And notice what he sees someone on a throne and how he's described. Very similar to what we see here, right? But it, this, this one there is called the Ancient of Days. I believe in that particular instance, he's talking about God the Father. However, if you'll go to verse 13, read verses 13 and 14, please. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there were given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. All right, in that context in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision and basically the vision of the four uh, world kingdoms that he had seen previously in the book, beginning in chapter 2 and so on. Um, but, you know, Babylonian, Media, Persia, the Greece, Greek, Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, all right? And in chapter 7, it shows where it starts seeing he sees the Ancient of Days, and the idea is that the, the last beast, that Roman Empire, is overthrown, and then the kingdom is given to... In verse 13, the one that's described as the Son of Man. All right, and then it just really emphasizes the fact that to him is given all dominion. All right, now notice what John says back in Revelation 1. Notice the correlations there. You saw that, that awesome description of the one called the Ancient of Days on his throne in Daniel 7. Now in, in Revelation 1, uh, he sees one 
in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto what? The Son of Man. All right? Same one that Daniel wrote about, the Son of Man. It's a prophetic term about the Messiah, all right? The one who would rule the world. Uh, like unto the Son of Man, then he's clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle and so on. All right, so you see this, this uh, uh, vision here in this. Um, and, and I believe there's three, I'm trying to think how to word this, three aspects of Jesus communicated here, all right, in this vision. All right, one is that he, he is the coming world ruler, the, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who will, you know, has and will execute ultimate dominion over this world, all right? But also in his description, you see indication that his description is not just as a king, but as a judge. And, and obviously kings did execute judgment and so on, but, but the fire that's involved here, notice, notice uh, talks about uh, of course, his, the Son of Man, that messianic title, and then he's girt about the paps with a golden girdle. The idea is his, his midsection is covered in a band of gold, all right? He has this white robe, and his feet are described as what? Like as brass that's burning in a furnace, all right? The, the idea of brass in the Bible is, is connected with judgment, all right? And then notice how his eyes are described. His eyes are described as a flame of fire. That's, that's, that's something that, again, communicates judgment. And the fact that he has eyes that can burn away everything and, and uncover any, everything, so to speak. Nothing's going to be hid from him. All right? But again, the idea of judgment and so on communicated in that. Um, and, of course, then his righteousness so on the white and his, his hair is white as wool. All right, and then notice, I mean, this is amazing when you think about the descriptions that are given here and what John was able to see. All right, first of all, this brilliant description of Jesus, how he appeared, and John says, the first thing I saw was seven golden candlesticks. I mean, that's miraculous to me because with the appearance of Jesus as it was, how in the world did you ever notice seven candlesticks around him? He would outshine them vastly, right? Right? And again, we'll get back to the candlesticks. But notice, he talks about his eyes, specifically, as a flame of fire. But then he also says his countenance, all right, or his face, his face was what? How's it described there? As, be, as shining, brighter than the sun shines in his strength. I mean, the brightest sunshine you can think of. And if you ever have been outside and the sun's shining bright and you look at it, what do you see? I mean, you can't see anything else, right? I mean, you and see the point, and, but yet John is able to see the details as well around Jesus and the fact that not only did his face shine like the, the sun, but his eyes were as a flame of fire. And out of his mouth goes a, a sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is, this is judgment, when Jesus comes back to this earth, he's not coming as a humble babe. He's not coming as a servant. He's not coming as a savior. He's coming as a rightful king to execute judgment on his enemies. That is a serious thing. 
I, I mean, that's, that's super serious. I, I, I don't have the vocabulary to describe how serious that is. But the third aspect that I believe is communicated with Jesus here because of everything else in the context and all this and the fact that he's seen as in the midst of his churches, right? he's not only described as the coming world ruler, the son of man, the Messiah, the king of kings, Lord of lords and so on, as a, the universal judge of all, but he's also shown as being the authoritative ecclesi- ecclesiastical head. In other words, the head of the churches. And that's where it's pertinent for the seven letters and the Lord's churches. Because we're not going to be the subjects of his judgment at his second coming, as the world will be. But we are connected with him in the fact that he is the head of the churches. And, that, and then, after this, he's going to communicate seven letters to his churches, which are very serious letters and should be taken seriously. And that aspect of this is... is, 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 is communicated in here as well. But, I mean, what a, what a vision. All right, I think we can take this time here. Um, I don't remember who had what, but Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, uh, verse... Did I say 54? Go ahead and, and start that. I, I think that's the right verses. When they heard these things, they were kept to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. All right, that's Stephen, all right, as he's getting ready to be stoned. All right, he's been talking to the, the Jewish leadership there. And Stephen has this... Very short, small glimpse into heaven. And what does he see? He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, he sees Jesus in his glorified state in heaven. And, you know, many people think, well, that's, you know, Jesus had stood up to welcome Stephen home. Maybe that's the case. All right, songs have been written about that and so on. But the point being, that's how he saw Jesus. Now, also... Again, I forget who has it. I think maybe John does. Acts chapter 9. Um, again, read the first nine verses, if you would. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembled, and as, uh, and, he tri- and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him to Damascus. And he was, and he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. All right, again... Another kind of snippet, if you want to say, of somebody seeing 
being shown a little glimpse of Jesus in his glorified state. Of course, that's Saul or Paul the Apostle during his conversion on the road to Damascus. But how, was, how did Saul describe seeing Jesus? All right? There was great noise. In fact, I'm trying to think it was either in Acts 22 or Acts 26 when he's reflecting back on this, giving his testimony to one of the uh, Roman leaders there, either Felix or, or Herod in Acts 26, but he talks about how the men that were with him heard a noise, but they didn't understand the voice, all right? Only Saul understood the words that Jesus spoke to him, all right? But, but what else, how else does he describe him there? Bright as the noonday sun. Again, very similar to how John describes him. But that's all that he saw. John is shown more details of Jesus than either, of course, Paul or Stephen was able to see. Uh, and, and obviously this is on purpose here. But, uh, but just what a, what a mad, majestic uh, picture that we have here. And, and we, you know, we're not going to take the time to talk about every single phrase in here and all these descriptions. But the bottom line is this. All right, look down at verse 17. And this is John, the apostle, again, the one that leaned at Jesus' breast. Now, uh, that might give some different connotations than what it's meant uh, when, when somebody reads that statement. But the idea is, John says this, when I saw him, all right, now think about this. If you were John, the apostle, and you saw Jesus, don't you think you'd want to embrace him or, you know, I mean... Perhaps, but notice what John's reaction was. This is just, I mean, this is just how overcome he was with seeing this vision, seeing Jesus in this state. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I mean, it's as if John, I mean, he just... And... This is such a sacred, such a fearful picture that that was how the Apostle John reacted. But, again, this is, this is, this is nice as well because notice the, how the Lord then responds to John. I believe John, I mean, he did what anybody would do in seeing Jesus in this condition. Fell down as dead. You know, the Bible talks about there's coming a time when every knee shall bow. Right now, people can willingly bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord, all right? God gives space to do that now, but for those who don't, there's coming a day when they will. And after seeing Jesus in a description like this, it's very understandable as to why they would. They won't, I mean, they'll be so compelled to, they can't help it. They realize who He is. All right? But it'll be too late to uh, receive His grace at that time. But, um, lost my place here. Verse 18, I am... Uh, sorry. I fell down at His feet as dead in verse 17, and He laid His right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. I mean, what a picture here. This awesome description of the Lord Jesus. John, 
falls down as dead, and Jesus reaches down and puts his hand on him. Don't be afraid. No, and think about this. I mean, this, this, I don't want this to be taken wrongly because we should have a healthy fear of God. I mean, the fear of God is a good thing according to the Bible, book of Proverbs and so on. But at the same time, at the same time, if we are a child of God, we don't have to be afraid of God. Jesus has endured. Think about that. Jesus has endured the wrath of God so that we don't have to. I mean, this is mind-blowing if you think about that. He willingly experienced God's just wrath toward us so that we don't have to. Somebody had to. For those that don't Come to Jesus in faith, all right? There's going to be a time when forever, for all eternity, they're going to experience the wrath of God. They'll never be able to pay for it. It's ongoing. But it also communicates the seriousness of sin and, and so on. But here in this instance, I just want to point, I mean, Jesus lays his hand on him. You know, you think about this. How many times in the Gospels did John, all right, in those three and a half years of, of earthly ministry, when John's following Jesus, how many times did he see Jesus lovingly put his hands on somebody and heal them? Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law put his hand on her, raised her up, and immediately she was whole. She didn't have to have a recovery period because it says immediately she ministered unto them. She, she started you know, working, serving. I mean, uh, raised... Peter, James, and John are the only three besides the parents that witnessed it but raised the little girl from the dead. I mean, just think about that. All those times John saw and now Jesus puts his hand on John. Don't be afraid. Fear not. All right? Because I am alive. I was dead, but I'm alive, and, and, and he says, and I have the keys. Think about that, the indication. He has the keys of Hell and death. He's the one with all authority. All right? Death has no power over the one that has the keys of death, obviously. All right? Then he tells him, okay, I got to hurry here. Um, he says, he's continuing on here. All right? Now think about that. Let me, let me back up for just a second. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick here. But if you want to think about the chronology of the book of Revelation, this would be what happens first. Because, all right, John's basically saying, all right, when all this starts with the book of Revelation, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and then I heard this voice turn, and this is what I saw, all right, and then this one tells me to write these things. Okay, back in verse, uh, lost my place here again, but back in verse uh, uh, 11, I think it is. He tells him to write these things and send it to the seven churches, right? All right, so here now he's relaying what Jesus told him. He said, write the things which thou hast seen, which again, when you think about it that way, that's this vision, these things about the Lord Jesus, all right? And the things which are, which are the let, uh, chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, the current things, 
all right? And the things which shall be hereafter, which will be in chapter 4 and following. And I included here, I, it, it, just as part of this, because of these verses are in this text here, but the profile of this declaration, we already mentioned this, the outline, the self-revealing outline of the book of Revelation. But I included the wording of, of uh, Harold Wilmington here because I thought it was pretty good the way he worded it. All right, Same outline, but his wording, I think, is a little, different than mine. But he says... All right, so first of all, John was told to write what you have seen, Christ in his ascended glory, all right? And then secondly, write the things that are now happening, the things which are, that are right now, the messages to the churches. And we, that's still the case because we are still in this church age, all right? The rapture hasn't happened, we're still in this time period, all right? And then the third, he says, write the things that will happen later, Christ's plan for the future, uh, chapters 4 through 22, all right? And then he says uh, in verse 20, all right, again, this is still Jesus talking to John as John, you know, after he lays his hand on him and, you know, says, don't fear, you know, get up and so on. He says, uh, write these things, and he says, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, that was part of that vision, right? And obviously when you see this, the other things are not mysterious, but Jesus having seven stars in his hand, that, that was something different, all right? He says, the mystery, in other words, I'm, I'm revealing to you now what hadn't been revealed, but the seven stars that thou sawest in my right hand uh, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels, the word angel literally means messenger, but we'll, we'll talk about that later, the, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches, all right? And then we go right into, in chapters 2 and 3, the, John writing these letters that apparently the Lord Jesus just continues talking after John sees this vision, right? He continues talking because he tells him, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And then he basically has dictated a letter. Uh, to write. That happens seven times uh, to these seven churches. So, um, anyway, we got to stop. I'm past due here. Sorry. But uh, what a wonderful, wonderful, I mean, this, this, is, this is an awesome experience that John had, this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by the way, the whole point is to communicate that is who is coming again. He's the one that's coming back. And to, for people to think that that's not a serious thing is beyond imagination. That just simply means they don't believe. There will come a day when they'll believe. But it'll be too late. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And help us now to, uh, again, be the people that we ought to be for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.